So in our text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, we have an excellent opportunity to look at how to read the Bible well. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? thankful that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that nobody can say that you're baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What we see here, of course, is that Paul is using a great many rhetorical devices. Paul is using figures of speech. In our evangelical tradition, we hold Scripture in high regard. We hold that it is inerrant, that it has been given to us by God, that it is inspired, that all of it matters, that it is of supreme authority for all matters of faith and practice. The problem is sometimes if we treat it like something it's not. If you imagine needing to figure out how to work your microwave and you opened a book of poetry, it wouldn't help you very much. In the same way, if you're trying to figure out the mysteries of life and love, you probably don't want to open up a microwave manual. Some people have described the Bible as the user's manual for life. That's not right because it doesn't read like a user's manual for life. I mean, there are parts of it, like if you're a Levitical priest, it gives you some very good instructions on how you do sacrifices. The first nine chapters of Leviticus are a butcher's manual for Levitical priests. Nobody here is a Levitical priest, so when we read that, it's going to have a different kind of meaning for us. We're going to read it differently. And certainly here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says a number of things that on their face don't seem to make a lot of sense. I mean, look at verse 12, right? He says, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas or Peter. Another, I follow Christ. Now, literally in the the Greek, it's just, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. Does anybody think from having read anything else of Paul's that he would not like the idea of somebody identifying with Christ? Right? Uh, generally speaking, I think he wants us to be of Christ. When we read in Acts, in chapter 11, that it was in Antioch that the followers of the way first became called, first were called Christians. Luke doesn't say, and boy, it really went downhill from there. There's nothing wrong with identifying as a Christian. Certainly, there's nothing wrong with identifying and participating in his life, death, and resurrection. This is the whole point of what Paul says in all of his letters. 
If we read this literally, we're going to miss that. No, we need to understand what Paul is doing. We also need to understand, by the way, that Paul is writing this on the fly. Paul has received reports of things going on in Corinth that are alarming to him, and so he is responding to this in the course of his missionary journeys. Paul is also, incidentally, not even writing this. Later on at the the end of chapter 16, it says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which would be a silly thing to say if he had just written the past 16 and a half chapters in his own hand. He had a secretary. I don't know if it's because Paul had the handwriting of a doctor or if Paul found it easier to write if somebody else was writing his stuff down for him. But Paul, as as we even hear here, is now that he's gotten, uh, gotten done with his introductions and the the kind words at the beginning, he's starting to deal with the problems that are going on in Corinth. And and it's almost like he's he's thinking faster than he can speak, right? He says, well, I didn't baptize anybody except Crispus and Gates. Yeah, I guess I baptized Stephanus's household. I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. It doesn't matter, right? You can imagine Paul as Bernie Sanders. That's probably what it was like right here. Or Larry David, if you prefer. It, It works. Oh, and, and Paul is certainly not saying that there should be no sense of identity, that, there's, that it's wrong to identify with a particular tradition or a particular group or with a particular teacher if that person is meaningful, is useful, is somebody who enables you to follow Christ. If we pick up a Benedictine prayer book, we're not supposed to feel bad that we're praying the prayers that St. Benedict taught. I mean, remember in Romans, I'm sure you remember fondly, Romans chapter 3, which we were at in around 1840. Romans chapter 3, Paul says, what advantage is there in being Jewish? Well, there's, there's a whole lot of value in being Jewish, actually, Paul said. I mean, you know, first of all, we were entrusted with the very words of God. Moving on to chapter 9, Paul, Paul says, you know, I... I could wish that I myself were, were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. Again, he's not saying, I really wish that I could be cut off from Christ and cursed. This is hyperbole. He is saying he loves so dearly his Jewish brothers and sisters, and, and he, he talks about all the blessings that the people of Israel received, the adoption of sons, divine glory, the covenants, receiving of Torah, the temple worship, the promises, theirs are the patriarchs, and, and, and from the Jewish people is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who's God over all, forever praised. Amen. There, there is no, there's nothing inherently wrong with identifying with a particular group. I, I, on the cover of your bulletin, you see a picture of Rick Faint with Buck Showalter, one of the greatest gifts to Baltimore. Buck Showalter is the man responsible primarily for the fact that the Orioles have the best record in the American League. And I have this picture not just so that we know who the real genius behind that baseball program is, but I have that because one of the things that that Buck has said is, I like our guys, right? People will come and ask, well, aren't you going to, you know, trade some folks and get some more people? He says, I like our guys. You can't say, I like our guys, if you don't have a sense that you've got a team that you're, that you're with. And that's actually, I like our guys became sort of our motto among the elders over the last couple of years. 
it's all right to say, yes, I follow the teachings of Paul, my, my teacher, probably the person who's had the greatest impact on how I read the New Testament. Mike Gorman is a Pauline scholar. He's not supposed to apologize for the fact that he's called a Pauline scholar. Jesuits aren't supposed to apologize for the fact that they're in the society of Jesus. Now, the problem comes when this sense of identification leads to negative results, when this sense of identification is all about separation, division, confusion, change. I lifted the title of this sermon from a very important formulation in systematic theology having to do with how we understand Christ's human and divine natures, that there is no division, separation, confusion, or change between his human and divine natures. That has nothing to do with this text. I just like that formulation. I find it easy to remember. And it actually gives us a roadmap to thinking through what's going on here. The problems that Paul finds in Corinth is that there is division. When he, when he says, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. He, he's not advocating group think. He's not suggesting that the church should be a Borg that roams around with all the same mind. No, he says when you may, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. He's not saying that there can't be any differences of opinion or practice. We'll get to that later on in this book where he talks about that. He says the differences of opinion and practice shouldn't be things that, that split you up. But what he's saying is that, that the problem is these differences are leading to divisions within the church of Corinth. We see in verse 11 that they are, in fact, leading to separation, quarreling. I just love it. And this is such a, a, subtle, a subtle point. You know, Paul says, you know, I, I hear that there are divisions among you. You know, I hear some people are saying, well, I'm one of Paul's guys, and I'm one of Apollos' guys, I'm one of Cephas' guys, I'm one of Christ's guys, and I heard that from Chloe's guys. Hmm. I think some emissary from Chloe's group, maybe her house church, sent a note narking on the rest of the Corinthian church. Now, the, the problem is that this has led to division, separation, and to confusion. He says in verse 13, what, it, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? What, obviously not. But this, in some ways, can be the implication of taking these group identifications too far. If you're getting too worked up about your identity as a follower of the teaching of this person or the other, you can miss the point. And ultimately, he says, in verse 17, that runs the risk of changing the gospel. And again here, when, when he says Christ didn't send me to baptize, he, he's not thus confessing sin for baptizing Stephanus and Gaius and 
and Crispus. He's, his mission was to be an apostle, was to build the church. If you're going to build the church, that means people are going to be coming to faith. When people come to faith, you baptize them. That's sort of the, the deal. He's not saying that I'm not supposed to baptize anybody, but I'm only supposed to preach. What he's saying is but my point was not to assemble a team of people who were going to be wearing my t-shirt. My point was not to say that Paul is the one who baptized me into Jesus, and Paul is the teacher I follow, and I'm sure glad that Paul is the one that is going to straighten out this church. For Paul, of course, it's all about Jesus. What he's preaching is not Paul. He's preaching Christ and him crucified. And when Paul says he's not preaching with words of human wisdom, we'll talk about this next week, he's not saying that you should sound like a complete idiot when you talk. What he's saying is that the point is not that we're starting a movement based on a charismatic leader or a charismatic speaker or somebody that folks are going to want to rally around. The only person folks ought to be rallying around is Jesus. And to the degree what is going on involves people rallying around anybody other than Jesus, that's a problem. That's a change to the true nature of the gospel. That's confusing. That separates people from one another and sets them to quarreling with each other. It divides the church, which Jesus did pray, after all, would be one even as he and the Father are one. Think about that for a second. John 17, his great high priestly prayer, Jesus says, I pray that they may all be one, Father, even as you and I are one. That the, the integrity of relationships within the body of Christ, within the church, are supposed to be a reflection of the unity of the Godhead relationship among the persons of the Trinity. And the reason for that, Jesus said, he said, may they all be one so that the world may know that you sent me. The unity of the church, the integrity of our relationships is a testimony to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Or, it isn't. As we'll see here, and in so many other issues going on in the Corinthian church, the things that the church was supposed to be doing in order to demonstrate the power of the gospel were actually demonstrating the foolishness of themselves in giving Jesus a bad name. I want to emphasize that when we read this passage, recognizing the rhetorical devices that Paul is using, when we realize when he is being sarcastic, when he is being, uh, when he's using hyperbole, when we really see where Paul is needling his audience a bit, we're not reading the Bible and blowing off what it actually says. We're in no way looking at Scripture and saying, well, I don't like that Paul said that, so I'm just going to ignore it. We're not forming a different interpretation because we would prefer a different interpretation. And we're not 
imposing upon Scripture our own preconceptions of what it ought to say, of what it ought to be about. And we're also not forming or not reading according to our preconceptions of what an apostle ought to do or ought to say. You may have the idea that an apostle, a real follower of Jesus, should never be sarcastic. I don't know where you got that idea, but you didn't get it from Scripture. Because Paul's letters are dripping with it all over the place. Jesus, as well, had a, a no shortage of zingers for his opponents. No, we don't come to the, the text, we don't come to Scripture with our own understanding of what it ought to say or how it ought to read. We come, as the song we sang says, saying, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. We come in humility. We come in submission. We come not looking to teach the text, but to learn from it. We come not looking to correct Paul, but to allow Paul to correct us. We come not listening for the voice of the Spirit in our own heads, but in the text. And as we'll see as we go through 1 Corinthians, there are a number of places where initially what we're seeing doesn't make sense. And, and when we read something and it doesn't make sense, what we're supposed to do is stop and say, now hang on a second, why doesn't that make sense? Now maybe it doesn't make sense because we are deeply enmeshed in sin and we don't want to hear what we've read. Maybe that it doesn't make sense because we are in an attitude of rebellion against the Lord of the universe. And maybe it doesn't make sense just because there's information we're missing. Maybe we don't understand something about the context in which Paul's writing. Maybe we, we have a translation that, that uh, could be better at that particular place. But there are times when something doesn't make sense because we know from other things in Scripture, we know from other things that very author has written. And we have 13 of Paul's letters here in, in the Bible. We know there are things that don't seem to fit. So what we often will do is take a closer look and say, well, what is that? What is that verse saying? When Paul is criticizing for people, people for saying, I follow Christ, or I am of Christ, literally, how, how on earth could he do that? Well, it's because there's a specific problem here in Corinth. There's a problem of division, of separation, of confusion, and shame. And so our job as we read this book, as we read scripture in general, is to adopt a posture of deference to the text, not judgment upon it. Eugene Peterson, one of the greatest writers on spiritual growth still alive, said that Reading scripture properly is an act of sustained humility. It's a willingness to allow the text to correct us rather than presuming to correct the text. That's a kind of attitude that we try to maintain as we read scripture here at New Hope. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that as we open your word, whether it's here on Sunday morning, 
or in our house churches, whether it's when we have our own devotions, be they at home or in a hotel room someplace or grabbing a quiet place at the office. Pray that we would always read with an attitude of submission, an attitude of deference, an attitude that says, Lord Jesus, teach us by your spirit, through your word. Pray that you would take your truth and plant it deep in us. We pray that our faithful study of your word would bear fruit in the lives of your servants and that it would manifest in this congregation, in new hope, not division and separation, but unity, even with our diversity, that we would be one as you and the Father are one, that that would be a testimony to our neighbors of the power exerted in your life, death, and resurrection. I pray that our understanding of the gospel would be made more clear rather than confused and that it would never, ever change from what you have delivered once and for all to the saints. Pray, Lord, that we would be faithful. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.